this a little bit tonight. I want you to take your Bibles and join with me in Revelation 3. Revelation 3 covers the last three churches of the seven churches of the church age. And man, we've been in this, it seems like for quite a while, we've been looking at the church age and studying it. And I uh, took a little bit of a break throughout the summer as we, were, we had guest speakers and we had all kinds of events. I taught on alternate topics. We had a great night last Sunday night. Uh, getting ready for school to start back. Uh, I enjoyed the ice cream social and the games that we played. I also en just enjoyed bringing the message to help prepare you kids for school. Kids, I hope you were listening to that. I hope you were listening to that little, little admonition that I gave you last Sunday night. There was a lot of just really raw wisdom there. If you'll put it to work and use it, you'll be a better student. And uh, remember the statement that I made, education is a preparation. It is not a punishment. And you know what? Fortune tends to smile on those that are prepared. Success tends to be found more in people who are trained and educated and, and, and you know, their, their, their skills are stirred. Remember the statement I made? You got to stir up that talent. Remember, if you don't stir it up, it may all fall to the bottom and uh, you may end up falling to the bottom. You don't want to end up at the bottom of the class or at the bottom of the job or at the bottom of the world one day because you haven't stirred up the talents that are in you. I hope you were listening. I enjoyed preaching, enjoyed bringing it, but now I'm going to be back in Revelation, which I'm really excited about it. As I said before, there are three churches listed in Revelation 3. There's the church at Sardis, the church of Philadelphia, and of course the last of the seven churches, the Laodicean church age. We're going to key now on church number five. I've already given to you a lot of information about it. I'm sorry, church number six. Church number six is the church at Philadelphia. We're going to key on that church tonight. Now, as I have already stated, the, these churches, the number seven is a very important word. It means completion, and it, of course, also could mean totality. It could mean a totality. So we see that as he uses the number seven, and he talks about seven separate churches, this is clearly a message that means it involves all churches. This is a a calling out to the churches of the world. And we can look at these churches and see where each of them had very distinct personalities. Now, it has been suggested, and I think there's a lot of credibility to it, that these seven churches represent a period called the church age. Now, there are people who don't believe that and people who say that that is not true, that that's not the intention of it, and there are probably as many who don't believe it as there are that do. I personally see a lot of credibility that these characteristics of these churches match up with the church throughout the last 2,000 years. I think that, that these churches all had certain periods of time and characteristics that the mainstream church movements demonstrated, and it's very documentable, and when you hold that calendar up to these church descriptions, it does seem to fit like a giant puzzle there. It seems like the pieces do fall into place. So I believe that it is one of those things that, that describes the church age, I do accept that, and I do believe it. Now, if you don't believe that and accept that, that's okay. We don't need to argue about it. But when you get to heaven, you will realize that I was right and you were wrong, just like in all of the other areas where this has occurred. Somebody say amen. But I can love you anyway, and that's all right. You know, you just keep doing it your way, and I'll just keep doing it the Bible way, and we'll just keep going. Amen. Actually, there's... All that said, there's no way to prove this. It's just a theory, but it is one that I find that I do see some credibility to it. Now, 
if that is the case, and, and the, this Philadelphia church age does represent a certain set of years on the calendar of time, the, the, the history of the church, most theologians believe that it represents the time from 1700 A.D. up to about the mid to mid-late 1900s, which means many of us in this room have lived on the tail end of the period of time that would have been the Philadelphia church age. Now, as a boy, I do truly believe that I got to glimpse the tail end of this wonderful age. Now, we're going to read some verses here, starting in verse 7, and then I'm going to go through it verse by verse quickly. And I've already given you the background of Philadelphia. I don't feel the need to go back through all that. I do want to remind you, though, what does the name Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love. Remember that sermon? Who remembers the sermon that I preached on brotherly love? All right, three people. Amen. I could preach that one again tonight, and y'all never even know it. Amen. But, uh, but I better not do that. Let's go ahead and move on into new material, and uh, let's see what happens here. All right, look at it, verse number 7. How many of you got your Bible and you're ready to learn something tonight? All right, if that's the case, you're not going to be disappointed. Look at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. For you that are paying attention, who is the he there? Who is it? Miss Tara, I saw you. It's Jesus. This is all descriptive language of Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the author of this letter. These were letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John, and John then had them sent to the churches all over this Roman providence of Asia, the Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey to now, uh, today, modern-day Turkey. But at that time, this was all under the Roman provinces. They were very close to each other. In fact, it is suggested that that John will end up preaching like a circuit rider in many of these churches. So he definitely had influence in them. But he writes these letters to these seven churches. And so we see that Jesus, though, is the author. We see that it's identified right there in verse number 7. This is all things that describe Jesus and none other. There is nobody else that could take those titles and hold them. Jesus is the one that is holy. He is the one that is true. He is the one that has the key of David, that authority, that authoritative key that can open and no man can shut it. No man can open it. Okay, now look at verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now we see there in verses 7 through 13 the entirety of the letter that God wrote to the church at Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. Now, first of all, in verse number 7, look at it. It says, Under the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy. He goes on, he says, The key of David. That key of David is going to be representative of 
God unlocking and unleashing the church. Now, up to this point, the church, the true church. Now, there has been different mainstream churches, and we learned this in history. The church at Sardis was representative of the Great Reformation where people began to protest the Catholic church, and the mainstream churches of the church at Sardis, church number five, was churches that were protesting the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church that had polluted the true word of God. Now remember this, and I, I make no apology for this. If it offends anybody, I'm sorry, but you are in a Baptist church. But remember this, we were never Catholics. We predated them. And if you go back to the first century A.D. and you find the very first churches started, and if you find the church that Jesus himself started, it was a Baptistic church. Now, we didn't become Baptists by pulling it out of the air. These Baptist doctrines were modeled after the teachings in the book of Acts and the epistles that followed. We ran our churches the way the first churches ran. Now, I don't claim to be equal to them. The Christian standard and level of that era was something I'm sure way above the modern-day standard. These were people who loved the Lord unto death. These were people who served the Lord under persecution. And all the day long, they were accounted as sheep for the slaughter, but yet... You and I are here today because they stood then. I wonder if Christianity could have survived what those first Christians stood for. I wonder if they could have survived watching their wives and their husbands and their children being driven into to prisons and being slaughtered and people cheering and laughing as we've seen in history. But in any case, we know that the mainstream church went underground, that it had to. It was scattered and dispersed and it spread all over the world. And we know that the more they tried to stop it, the more they simply just spread it. It became a wildfire. And we also know from history that like an underground river that although can't be seen, it's still flowing. The history of the Baptist church is an unbroken line all the way back to the original church in Acts. Now, we can show this, and I have shown it. I have gone into great studies on Wednesday nights on what does it mean to be a Baptist, and I showed you the Baptist church going all the way back to the book of Acts. Now, we weren't always called Baptists. There were other names. By the way, the name Baptist was given to us by our enemies. They called us this because we submerged our converts, Baptists. Before that, we had the name Anabaptist, and we had the names Paulicians, and we, had, uh, we were called Waldensians because of a great leader in the church named Peter Waldo. There was also Paulicians. That's because we followed the teachings of Paul. I mean, man, you're getting back there close to the sore spring when you're, I mean, you're, you're getting the name Paulicians in your lineage. I mean, Paul wrote half the New Testament. So those are some pretty good people to have in your resume, your family tree, amen? Well, we know this, that underground, because of persecution and because of, 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 of uh, you know, the way the world was toward Christianity, Christianity had to go into secret. There's all kinds of evidence of it. Who's ever seen the fish symbol? What do you know when you see in the back of a car a fish symbol? By the way, I don't have one. I'm not going to put one on there, and I'll tell you why. I know how I drive, especially when I'm running late. And some of you ought to take it off your car too, amen? Anything to give Jesus a bad name. I don't have one back of my car, but, but you, know, uh, you know, I want to have the right to get mad and have road rage without hurting the name of Christ. I want to be anonymous. Who's with me on that? Say amen. But in any case, it, when you see that, that fish... I mean, what, you think it's a guy that just likes to go fishing? Maybe you say, there's a guy that's a bass fisherman. Man, that guy loves, look at the fish symbol in the back of his car. No, that's not what it means. You know what it means. It's a symbol of Christianity. It's a symbol for Jesus. 
Well, that goes back to that period of time when Christians had to be secret and they would put symbols on things that they knew each other would recognize. But they were trying to keep it secret from the, the powers that be that were trying to arrest them, persecute them. The fish symbol was just one of many symbols that Christians used during those periods of time that was an identifying mark amongst each other. And so they'd put a fish symbol on things, and Christians knew there was a fellow Christian there. It was a secret thing, but it was an underground work where people were being converted and people were being reached because they had real enemies. Then we saw where the, the, for the next several churches where it was a church that, that they were, you know, you see the Catholic church became the mainstream. We saw evidence of that in those churches that we studied. Then you come over here to Sardis and you see a church where there's, there, there's, you know, they're breaking away from the Catholic church, but many of them did not break away far enough, and it was the traditionalisms that they ended up going back to that ended up, for many of those churches, choking the life out of them. Now, meanwhile, while all that's going on in history, the mainstream churches, the churches, if you were to go to the town, where's the nearest Christian church? Well, there's the Catholic church right there. For centuries, that was the only open Christianity that people could see. You understand that's important that you grasp this. You've got to understand that if you were a Christian during this Roman Empire period, if you went to the average town during the Byzantine Empire, if you went to a Christian church that was openly operating, it had to be a church that the state approved. And even before Constantine approved of the Catholic Church, man, I mean, if you did not worship the... And you're going to see an allusion to this here in a minute where they allude to it, but not an allusion, but an alluding. You're going to see where, you know, some of this comes up, but you had to worship the emperor of Rome, and there were few exceptions. The Jews were given an exception where they did not have to worship the emperor of Rome. But anybody else who operated a religious institution that you worshipped anything beyond the emperor of Rome, you were in violation of Roman law and could be arrested and persecuted. And if you tried to witness and got caught, that's how they ended up persecuting Paul. Paul had his head chopped off because he had violated the rules and the laws of proselyting in their mind. You worshipped the emperor of Rome. He was a deity. He was a god. Now comes along Constantine. He institutes the official church of Rome. So if you went to a, a, a town and there was a Christian church teaching about Jesus, if it was in the, 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 the visible setting where you could do it without being persecuted or prosecuted or shut down, it was a Roman Catholic church. Now, while all that's going on, secretly in the back buildings and upper rooms, back of houses, there were Baptists. They were our founding fathers. These were our, our, our patriarchs who were meeting and preaching from the Textus Receptus, the Bible that they had stood for and preserved, that Greek text. And they were standing on the teachings and the, the preachings handed down from the apostles. And they fought this popalism. And they were there. There wasn't millions of them, but they did have numbers everywhere. Small groups, but small groups in every, pretty much every city go through those regions. And so you see where you come down to the church at Philadelphia. Do you realize the driving factor that made a bunch of people say goodbye to their grandparents, their brothers, their sisters, and their cousins, and get on an old rickety ship and cross the Atlantic, come to a frozen, 
pretty much ice cap in the middle of the winter where many of them died the first winter. The pilgrims was religious freedom. It was not legal to worship God as you and I worship as Baptists today. Now, there had already been a major split. There had been the Catholic Church. The King of England got into the Catholic Church because they wouldn't let him divorce his wife, so he had the authority. He just went ahead and started his own church. Now, relations between the British Empire and the Roman Empire are starting to get bad, except the Roman Empire has become a weakened military state Whereas before, it ran the world with an iron fist during the Byzantine Empire period where it became a religious state with a military still behind it. Now the, Roman, now the, the, the British Empire is starting to compete with it. Now the British Empire says, I don't want to answer to Italy. I'm not going to go over there to Rome and ask that guy's permission. I'm the king of England. So he started the Church of England. Now it was the same principles. It was just one went back to Britain and the other went back to England. Are you with me so far? All right. There were people all underground here. We do not believe, nor do we accept the teachings of the Church of England or the Church of Rome. These were people that were our forefathers as Baptists, and they said we need to go to a place for religious freedom. Now, we've all heard our history. We know that you cannot study the history of America, but that you don't see the Reformation and the Great Awakening and all those things playing a part in it people waking up to the fact that there's more to Christianity than just the Church of, Church of England. And in fact, these are two corrupt churches, and they started reading the Word of God because something major happened right around that time where people started reading the Word of God. What was it? What happened in the 1600s that was a major game changer for Christianity? 1611, to be precise. They were given a perfected, legal, authorized version of the Bible. Now, this 1611 King James Bible, again, the king of Rome said, you know what, Pope in, in, in Rome, uh, I'm sorry, the king of England looked over at Rome and said, you know what, I don't care what you say. We're the empire now. He authorized that they were able to take the Bible from Latin to English. First time in history, people like you and me could read the Bible, and because of the British Empire, English has now become the standard language for most of the world. And in fact, during that middle period, England began to grow and to grow and to grow, and they began to annex nations. Entire nations lost their, their, their native tongue. They were not allowed to speak it in schools. They were not allowed to speak it at home. To speak that language and not use English could be a punishable by jail offense. You know, the Celtic language. I'm, I go back to Scotland. They spoke a Celtic language. That language is pretty much lost to the world. Very few people, little bits and pieces of it remain, but the, the British Empire made it illegal to speak anything but English. Now, that means that most of the world spoke English. So here we see a, 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 a diversified, you know, a, a, I'm sorry, a, a unified language. Now, again, they meant it for bad, but you see again how God uses it for good. Now suddenly, an English Bible is going to be able to reach most of the known world. Are you still with me? So 1611, the world suddenly gets the King James Bible. Now, revival starts breaking out all over the world. People start reading the Bible for the first time. You know, where the Bible is always magnified, righteousness grows. 
the world was coming out of a period called, called the Dark Ages. Coming out of the Dark Ages, people started seeing the light, and that light was the Word of God. And then, man, not only did they start to become knowledge in the Bible, but medicine and development and, and, and all these unbelievable miracles of industry. I mean, all these things that you and I take for granted today, it's hard to imagine there was a world that didn't have airplanes and jets and air conditioning and, and surgeries. And I mean, now we really do live under the naivety that there's a pill that fixes everything. Can you imagine a world where there was zero medicine? I mean, oh, you've been cut, you have an infection? Here, rub some horse manure on it. That's the stuff they did back then. Spit in it. Let me spit in it. Go let a dog lick it. That was one of the main... Did you know that literally in the Dark Ages, one of the main ways to treat an open cut was to have a dog lick the cut? Oh, you're sick? We have leeches. Come in my office. That, that was the end of the... Man knowledge started spreading and it started with the King James Bible and, the, and it started with telling the church of Rome to step off because we're now in control. So you see, hey, this thing started expanding. Well, then all of a sudden, here comes this little country called America and these people called pilgrims and they came over here looking for religious freedom and that all happened in the late 1600s right after the King James Bible and all that or the early 1600s. And this is all developing we know that America started forming as a country during the Philadelphia Church Age. By the way, the first capital of America was a town called Philadelphia. How many of you believe that was just a big old coincidence? Amen. That was our first national capital. And there's all kinds of connections to America and the things that we see connected here to the Philadelphia Church as far as liberty. Uh, you know, he says here that, that there would be a key that would open up and you'd be unbridled and you'd be allowed, you'd be unleashed. And he's talking about the Word of God, the things that churches do. We, we ought to be evangelistic. That's job number one. So he's saying, as a church, I have the key to unleash and unlock, and no man can shut it. The world is going to be open to you. To do what? Have pancake socials? Is that what you think that he wanted us to go spread around the world? What, what did he open up for the church to go do? What was opened up to us? What do you think, Brother Xavier? The gospel. Now, that's not a big deal to me and you. We don't understand. We went soul one in Monday night. We didn't have to check in with anybody. No policeman pulled us over. We didn't have a guy in a black leather jacket suddenly pull us over and want to know our information. We just went soul winning. We didn't worry about the government stopping us or arresting us. We didn't worry about being locked up. We didn't do it under fear. We worried about dogs biting us. We worried about maybe some idiot doing something stupid or... or somebody being rude to us, but I wasn't worried at all about being arrested, were you? We went out and freely evangelized. Now, that was unheard of for people before the Philadelphia church age. To go out and invite people to church, if you invited the wrong person, you could end up in prison. All it took was one loose lip to, to, to literally, not only you, but everybody who you worship with could be captured. Remember the Apostle Paul? Even going back to the first century, his job was to infiltrate little cells of Christianity that were secretly worshiping and to have them arrested and brought to Roman justice because it was illegal to be a Christian. And that was going on. All of a sudden, we have the Philadelphia church age where the climate of the world started changing. It wasn't by accident. 
And it wasn't by coincidence. This stuff is, is it's all lined out right there. We see it in the calendars. We see how this literally unfolded. All these churches, these other five churches, we see what all lines up to right here. Well, then we see here where the Philadelphia church age comes upon us. Now there's a, a, a key of the David that's unlocked and unleashed on the world, the ability to preach. The King James Version Bible has now been given to the world where they now legally, any interference can read the Bible in the English language, and not just any Bible, a perfected translation of the Word of God by the greatest linguist in the world that the world has ever seen. During this time, Christian churches, real Christian churches, began to grow and come out of the shadows, and they began to operate on Main Street. Man, we're sitting right here on Pine, right here in Pine, right on Powers Drive. I don't have to put some other sign with a little fish in the corner of it so you can find me. But they did. It might would be, you know, Marley's Bait Shop. Then you look down in the small corner of it, they'd have a little fish symbol, and Christians knew you could worship God. It was secret. We have a big old sign out front. We have buses with our church name. We run around putting our name on everything we can get it on. We don't worry about persecution. Why? Because God opened the door to us. In the entirety of America's history, we have stood for Christian freedom. It all came at that time. Something unheralded that the world had never really known. Churches were then growing, and Bible-preaching churches were cropping up everywhere in every town in America. And then America became a nation that was the symbol of religious freedom, and we see this. Now, look at it again there. In verse 8, he says, I know thy works, something he has said to every one of them. I want to remind you, God knows our works, Orlando Baptist Temple. He knows what kind of church we are. And let me take it a step further. God knows your works, if there are any. Are you working for the Lord? I mean, are you serving God? You've got to have works for God to know your works. I hope you have some works. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. If you're taking notes, right next to that, religious freedom. God says, I'm going to set before you, Philadelphia, a period of time where the churches have religious freedom. There will be no restraint on what you do for me. You'll get to preach and teach and evangelize and soul win and, and knock on doors and hand out tracts, and there won't be any restraint. It'll be legal and it'll be open, and that day's coming. He says, I'm going to give to you an open door. And he says, no man can shut it. By the way, they have tried to shut this, and these liberals and these atheists, and they make our job harder, but they cannot stop us. You, know, you look at the, even the public school system. As much as the powers that be do not want us in there preaching and teaching, they can't stop it. All we got to do is get a student to sponsor it, and we can have a classroom and literally set up a Bible club. Brother Xavier, I've challenged him to get into the schools. He's working on that right now. If we can get a public school student to sponsor it, we can start a Bible club and teach about Jesus on the government paid for facilities on their property, and they cannot silence us. They cannot stop us. One of the most awesome things in the history of Christianity was when our government had the foresight to write a law that said there will be separation of church and state. Now, the liberals have taken this into something that's not supposed to be, but the reality is it was not to protect the state from the church. It was to protect the church from being a state-ran institution. Now, the Catholic Church and the Church of England were not churches. They were state institutions to imprison people using religion as the prison gatekeeper. 
That was not. Jesus didn't come to restrain. He came to set men free. And you know what? Our government said we don't want a king-ran church system. So that whole thing was set up to give this open door that we're looking at right here. Now, I guess it's just a coincidence that it happened during this time that America, with a state national capital in a city called Philadelphia, comes into being. First nation in the history of the world to grant religious freedom to that level. Then he says this, no man can shut it. Now, notice this. He says, for thou hast a little strength. What is he talking about there? You have a little strength. It's a literal meaning there. He's talking to the church of Philadelphia. It's a period of time where Christians have had to be in hiding, meeting in the back of bakeries, back of people's homes. Meanwhile, there's massive basilicas, Catholic churches, thousands and thousands of people gathering. Meanwhile, in the back of some little basement, there's a little group of Christians worshiping and reading out of the Textus Receptus, which was the father of our King James Bible. You know what he says? You know what he's saying here? Y'all have a little strength. You're tiny compared to the mainstream churches. You have been up to this point. You've been meeting in storefronts, and you have been persecuted and frightened and scared, and there's just a small gathering of you. Kind of like us tonight. We're not the mainstream anymore. We're not in the Philadelphia church age anymore. It ended around the mid to late 1900s. We're in the last, the seventh church age now. So people look around. This, this building was built to hold about five or six, maybe seven times what we got here tonight. We have a little strength. And remember that the five ages before them, the five church ages that preceded them, they had a little strength. They were just little groups. You know what he's saying here? Y'all had a little strength. You're not the mainstream. There's not massive numbers. You're not a big movement. He's pointing out that these were small gatherings of Christians. Sometimes we feel, you know, inferior. We see big, huge churches that are monuments to compromise, and they're jam-packed full. But what we are tonight represented the start. This is the genesis of the great, massive movement that became the Philadelphia Church Age. Now, there was characteristics here that he's going to point out about them that are very important. He says, number one, you're, you're little. You're little groups. You have little strength. You're not the big churches in the town. You're the small little gatherings here. But he says this. He says, for thou hast little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. He says there's two things about you that, that the Lord appreciates. He's going to make two observations here. Are y'all still with me? He actually gives three observations about them. Number one, that they had little strength. They were small groups of Christians, not mainstream churches. Number two, but he said, you've kept my word. These were Christians that in a world full of people who were deceived by popalism, these were people who stayed with the word of God. These were that little groups that were still studying the Textus Receptus. They stood with the Word of God. You want to keep from getting into a cult? Stay with the Word of God. I was reading today where, where the Mormon church is all up in arms. They're tired of being called Mormons. They don't want to be called Mormons. They said that's not an authorized title that the church has authorized. And they don't want to be called LDS anymore. They want to be called by their official name, 
the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They don't want to be abbreviated, and they don't want to be Mormons. Although it's okay to refer to the Bible as the Book of Mormon, they don't want to be called. And this has been a big deal. Who's, nobody else has seen this on the news? Have you saw it? It's been all over the news. It was on, it was on uh, Robin Mead reported it on Friday on whatever that whatever one she's on, but it's been all over CNN and Fox, and it's been a big deal. They made big statements about it. I, I would rather call them by the name I know them as, a cult. Just call them the big bat cult. I don't think they'd like that name either. Anyway, he said, hey, you want, you, you've, you've kept my word. You've kept my word. You didn't join into mainstream. You didn't get caught up into these other things. You're a small group, but, but I appreciate that you stayed with my book. I'm going to tell you something throughout history. Churches that stand on the word of God have usually not been the biggest churches in town. For most of the Christian history, now the Philadelphia age produced some very large Bible preaching churches, but for most of the Christian history, churches that truly stood for the word of God were small gatherings. Small gatherings of people, usually meeting in secret, meeting while being despised by mainstream Christianity. I don't think things have changed too drastically. I think it's still a lot that way. Listen, I, I know we're not the biggest church in town, and we're probably not going to be, but I promise you this, we're going to stand on the Word of God. If we take that KJV off of our, our stuff and start using other versions, we'd have a bigger crowd. But I would rather be of little strength, but God be pleased with me. Be faithful. Stand with the Word of God. He said, you've kept my Word. They kept the right Bible. They stayed with the Bible. They preached the Bible. They taught the Bible. And to them, being right in the Word of God and having correctness in their Word of God was more important than being mainstream and popular. We see that at number three, he points out that they have not denied my name. Do you see that? For thou hast a little strength, you've kept my word. And he said, number three, you hast not denied my name. That just simply means that they stood for Jesus. In a world of compromise, they didn't deny the name of Christ. They stood. So we, they kept and they stood. And although they were little, they were fearless. And they just kept doing what was right. So we see this. They had been oppressed, but now great freedom is going to be given to them. They're going to get to come out of the shadows, come out of the basements, come out of the back rooms. Now revival will be the result. You can't study this period of history from 1700 to the mid-1900s that you don't see great revivals breaking out all over America and big names. You'll see names like D.L. Moody in Chicago who 30,000 people a Sunday come hear that man preach. You're looking at Sam Jones and Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday preached so hard during that period that he literally brought prohibition to America. Uh, there's a song that, that, that Frank Sinatra sings where he praises the town of Chicago because it was the only town that was so wicked that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down town built on alcohol, but, but cities all over America began to shut down their bars and their breweries, and it got so, it, he preached so hard against alcohol that they began to literally de develop legislation that led to prohibition, and it all started with a preacher, revivals, and he had revivals all over America, and we saw that rise during that period where he, he was somebody that thousands of people would come and hear him preach, and of course we hear a bill 
Graham and Charles Spurgeon and we hear of men like Jack Hiles and Lee Robertson and J. Frank Norris and R.A. Torrey and R.G. Lee, all these men, they, they preached to thousands and thousands of people when they would preach. Charles Spurgeon, I've actually been to the building where he pastored in England, but literally all over the world the word of God was spreading during this age. And his buildings, they would have sometimes up to four or five services a day with different crowds. They even had to give out tickets. You had to get a ticket to go hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And he'd have thousands of people, then they would dismiss. Thousands of more people would come in, and it wouldn't be the same crowd. It would be new people. Three or four times every Sunday, the word of God was spreading. People were getting saved, and the Baptist faith was growing and mainstream and, and, and evangelistic, out-of-the-closet type. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know what I'm saying. They got to come out and be in the light. We see all this happening during this Philadelphia church age. Now notice this. Uh, missions since the 1700s. The door to many countries has opened and missions has exploded all over the world. Countries that were closed to Christianity pre the 1700s. We've been able to get in there and been able to reach people. And we've seen a lot of that happening. Now look at verse number 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now we see here that in verse 9, that, uh, that that's a reference to there were, you, you, could be, you could be exempt from worshiping the, the, the emperor of Rome if you were a Jew. There were Jews that turned Christians in during that time who, you know, were worshiping Jesus. And many of them got arrested and that's a reference to that. When I did some cross-searching on that, I saw that come up on several different commentaries. Number 10, because, verse number 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. He is saying that God promised the church protection against the tribulation. Churches of this period have been protected by the laws of separation of church and state. We have been able to operate without interruption. We've been protected by the hand of God and we've had laws protecting us and God implemented those laws and, and we've seen where Christianity flourished because we had protection from tribulation. There are still many Philadelphia age churches alive today. They're not as big and they're not as mainstream. You and I are sitting in a Philadelphia age church. We're not as big as we used to be. But there was a time, you've got to remember, that Orlando Baptist Temple ran 1,000 every Sunday. You look at pictures down that hall. And back in the 60s, the tail end of that Philadelphia church age, churches like us all over America were thriving. And in many cases, the largest church in every town would have been a fire-breathing, hellfire, brimstone, King James Bible-preaching Baptist church. We were evangelistic. Now, that period has come to an end, and we all sit around. We long for the past. But we did see this prophetic uh, you know, portion of scripture come to pass. We did see an age where religious freedom caused great revival and churches were booming and they were protected against the tribulations that their forefathers had seen and they were allowed to work and to minister. Now, look at verse number uh, 11. He says, Behold, I come quickly. That's a, re a reference to the rapture and the reason we need to stay faithful is that God is going to come back one day. But he says, Hold that fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown. You know what he's saying here? Don't let anyone or anything take away what God has for you. 
Now, again, how do you, how do you keep people from taking away the crown? What, what do you do? That, you know, God's got a reward for you. Number one, stay with the Word of God as they did. Number two, stand up, stand up for Jesus as they did. Number three, stand fast. That means drive your stake down hard. Don't blow in the wind. Stand fast. That's what he tells them here. He says, hey, hold fast. Hold that fast. When something's fastened, it's driven in deep. It's secure. You need to be fastened in the Word of God, in the house of God, in the work of God. Do not be a tumbleweed for Christ. You be something fastened. I'm tired of watching Christians get in and dabble in church. Get driven into your church. He says, hey, don't let anything or anyone take away the crown that I have for you. What crown is he talking about? Well, as we're getting ready to wrap this up, 2 Timothy 4. Man, I'm moving as fast as I can. I just run out of time, folks. And uh, it just, there's so much here. Are y'all having, are you getting anything? I don't mean to take things into you know, lengthier times, and I'm just about done, but man, it's hard to adequately teach through a series and do it in, in sometimes the timely fashion that I have. 2 Timothy 4, look at verse number 1. It says, I charge thee before, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. That's talking about the saved and the lost. The quick are those that were dead in their sins but made alive in Christ. The word quickening being a farming word, it's like a seed that's dead and life springs out of it. You and I were quickened. We were dead in our sins, but the blood of Jesus has caused life to come out of where there was only death. So we're the quick. We're the, we're the ones that have life has come out of what was just dead and dried up. Then he says, and the dead, those that are lost, those that are spiritually dead, at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, re, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Folks, we know that we're living in this day and age right now where this is the common church of the world people don't want to hear preaching anymore they don't want to hear people hitting a pulpit and thundering it out they want to hear motivational speakers they want to hear chicken soup for the soul a little story a little fable with a little moral it doesn't even have to fit in the word of god as long as it's positive and happy and they're heaping to themselves these kind of preachers those are the mainstream churches of the day with robotic looking preachers who never raise their voice will not preach against anything they only preach four things they will not stand for God. They will not stand for this Bible. You go in their churches and there's versions and perversions all over the auditorium and they have lost their fastening. They didn't stand fast. They didn't stand. You know what somebody said? If you don't learn to stand for something, you'll fall for anything. A lot of men that call themselves men of God are really just men of their own name. They're there to make people happy. Notice what else he says here. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. It shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. That's one that goes around telling the good news, the gospel. Make full proof of thy ministry. Now catch this. Paul says, for I am now ready to be offered. I'm about to die, he says. I know I'm about to have my head chopped off for the cause of Christ. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Let me tell you something, brother. You better fight for the cause of good Christ. You better finish the course God has for you, stay in His will, and you better keep the faith. If you can do that on your death day, you've been a success.
on your deathbed, if you can look into the eyes of people around you and say, honestly, I fought a good fight for the Lord. The old devil got me some, but I fought hard. I fought hard to be a righteous person. If you can honestly say, I finished my course, I did the tasks that God put me here to do. I didn't get rich. There's no statues for me. There's no monuments that, that, that will remind people I was here, but I did what God wanted me to do. If you can honestly say at the end of your life, I finished my course that God had for me. And if you can honestly say, I went to the grave and I still believe in Jesus and I still shout and I still get excited and I still believe that I'm going I'm to see heaven's gates. You can die a successful person. Paul said, I'm going to die, but these are things that I know I've done. Then he says in verse 8, Henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. There he mentions that crown of righteousness for those who live for the appearing of Jesus, who have lived their life in faithfulness, not deterring, not quitting. They've put their eye on the appearing of Christ, and they've made the point of their existence to live for the day that they stand before God. He says, hey, beloved, don't let anybody take away your crown. There are Christians that have allowed the world to take away their crown of righteousness. They've allowed it to be taken away. They've dipped this crown of righteousness. I hope to have that crown to lay at the foot of Jesus one day, don't you? And he says, hey, you better stay with the word, you better stand up, and you better stand fast. You better drive it down deep if you want to have a crown to lay at the foot of Christ one day. I hope you'll have that crown. Man, I'm out of time, but I, just, I, want, to, I want to finish this one thought here. Can we go back to Revelation? Is there anybody still out there listening? Y'all still having a good time? Oh, listen, this is passionate stuff. Passionate stuff. I feel that we fail to understand how great it is. You and I didn't live in an age where we watched people be beheaded for preaching Jesus. Hang on, though. You may get to see it yet. It's going to happen during the Laodicean leading into the tribulation period. There's going to come a day where we're going to long for the Philadelphia period that we've enjoyed and taken so for granted. The day will come that we'll have to one day secretly worship our Lord again. Or at least that, that not maybe us, we'll be of the Lord, but Christians that are on this planet. During the tribulation period, salvation is going to come at a cost. That's coming right after the period we're in, if there's anything to this. If we're in that seventh and final period, the next period is the tribulation. Pretty amazing. Look at verse number 12, Revelation 3, 12. He says this, him that, overcome, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. In cross-study in this, I found that, that Philadelphia had massive earthquakes, and literally much of the city was destroyed over about a 20-year period. They sustained a series of horrible, horrible earthquakes, and only the buildings that had the strongest pillars were able to survive, and many of the people that lived in the city of Philadelphia ended up moving far into the countrysides and out into the outskirts. And so we saw in this that the, the imagery that he's using here of a pillar, people living in Philadelphia would definitely understand that the stronger the pillar, the stronger the building. Well, listen to me. He says that if you will overcome, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He's saying you'll be a pillar in the church work of God, and you'll go no more out. Churches that are strong or churches that have strong pillars 
in those churches, people that are strong and committed to the work of God in that church. Just as a strong building can survive an earthquake if it has the strongest pillars, a strong church can survive the earthquakes that the devil brings our way by having strong pillars of Christians in our church. He says, if you'll overcome, I'll make you a strong pillar in the temple of the Lord. And then he says to the people of this Philadelphia age, he says, hey, you know, I will, uh, you, you won't have to go out. You know, a lot of uh, churches that had uh, strong pillars of committed people in the, in the, in the 1700s, the 1900s, uh, a lot of these, these churches, you know, remained very strong. Now it seems that due to the earthquakes of time in these churches, many are outside of the church now. Many of people are outside the church. But in all these churches, you know, there's a lot of people out there in the Internet world that would probably take shots at Orlando Baptist Temple and talk about how we're not what we used to be and we're not as big as we once were. And I've heard those things and I've seen them. It always occurs to me, it's from people who are now, not only are they not pillars in the church, but they're not even in the church. But you know why Orlando Baptist Temple's still here? Because of people like Miss Terrell sitting there. People like Brother Gary, Miss Angelica. Miss Angelica, how long have you been going to church here? Your whole life. And you still love it. Drove a church bus this morning. That's being a pillar. Think about Miss Hay, who's been going to church here since 1952. Miss Alice Hall, 1952, right around there. She joined this church and has come week after week after week. Miss Diane, you've been coming here for, with your husband for, I guess, around 40 years. Brother Riles, almost 40 years. This church would not stand today if it hadn't been for the pillars of this church. When I came in to be the pastor here, there wasn't a large group of people. To be honest, we still don't have a huge group of people, but we have a strong church. and We have some pillars in this church. That means people that love this church and are committed to it. Even with us talking about the future of relocating, people dug in even more and said, I love my church, and I'm just for what makes my church continue. A lot of churches would have self-destructed in what we've been through the last year of all the talks we've had. I believe that we're, 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 we're man, we're, we're stronger than we've been the last couple of years. And I'll tell you why. Because we've stood on the book. Even though we had little strength, we stood for this book. Every pastor that's preached behind this pulpit preached from a King James Bible. And we stood for Jesus. Pastor Kimball built this, this pulpit. He wrote, they came to hear about Jesus. And we're still here. And churches all around us have folded and closed their doors and their people went out. They left the city and they moved out to the you know, other places where there wasn't you know, out of the church. But the buildings with the strong pillars survived. And he said, I'll make you a strong pillar in the house of God. Don't you want to be a strong pillar in the house of God where we can help withstand the earthquakes that, that often hit churches in this day and age? Don't be one of those outside of the church. Be a pillar in the church. Pillars were objects of two things. They were, number one, an object of support and strength. We need people that are objects of support and strength in our church today. But also, number two, they were objects of beauty and honor. Pillars were always very ornate, and they were gorgeous, and they were praised for their beauty. Beautiful pillars that you see in structures. You know, it's not that you should do it for this, but honor comes to those who become the strong pillars in a church. 
A lot of times people want to have the honor that a pillar in a church will have, but they don't want to exert the faithfulness that is required to have that honor. You know what I'm trying to say? Isn't that what Ananias and Sapphira did when they wanted to have the, they wanted to be a pillar like Barnabas, but they wanted maximum honor with minimal investment. My friend, if you want to be a pillar in the house of God, great honor comes to those people. But you need to, you need to be able to handle the weight that comes with the pillar. Because it starts off, number one, as the thing built to support and to add strength to the structure. Then, the secondary purpose is for honor and beauty. Now, lastly there, he simply says, uh, and I will write upon him my new name. That's simply talking about how God will place his name on you and declare you as a citizen of heaven. You'll be protected by him and you're a citizen with all the privileges and rights thereof. And then when he says that, when he, and you read that whole verse, you'll see there where he adds you to the kingdom of heaven. Number two, he says the new name. You know what that is? That's your adopted family name. You're now a part of the family of God. We just sing about it. My little sister, Cindy, she doesn't mind me sharing this, but Cindy was not born to my mother and father in a natural way. She was born to a teenage girl who was horrified, scared, and was unmarried. That mother was a severe drug addict. We knew the girl. We knew that, that she had gotten pregnant. She wanted to give the baby up for an abortion and, and, and struggled with that. At the last minute, decided to go ahead and have the baby but to put it up for adoption. Well, my mom and dad just started praying about it, and they felt the Lord would have them adopt. Cindy was brought home when she was two days old. We brought her home from the hospital. My mom and dad adopted her. Now, she was not naturally born with the Riggs name. But when my mom and dad adopted her, legally, her name became Riggs. Now, according to the laws of America, that can be unrevoked. She is now adopted. She is a Riggs with all the privileges and rights thereof. She can never be disowned, and she can never be unadopted. She is permanently part of the Riggs family. You realize that's what God did for us? When you and I were born, we had the world's name on us. But when we overcame and trusted the Lord, we were given a new name, and that new name is the family of God's name. We were added to the citizenship roles of heaven. One day we'll rejoice forevermore. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we wrap up the thoughts. We'll go to the next...